The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In this short letter, the biblical book of Jude, that is close to the final book of the Bible, he has introduced the purpose for us in verse 3 and 4, that we as Christians are to cherish the faith and when necessary to contend for the faith. And that dual purpose essentially governs the entire book, and it's going to govern today's passage as well. In verses 14 through 16, again, Jude warns about false teachers and the sinful way that they can live. But then in the second half that we're going to focus on, verses 17 through 23, he talks about the truth and how we walk in the truth. That reminds us of a couple principles here up front. Um, Christians should not be a cancel culture. Christians should not be a cancel culture. If you know what cancel culture is, I think Abdu Murray defines it well. He says, it was once the case that differing opinions, including ones that challenge culturally approved mores, were debated with facts and sound argumentation. But now when a person says or does something that runs afoul of the current cultural preferences, we cancel that person. We shut her down with names, epithets, and ad hominem attacks. If she's a musician, we call for boycotts on her music. If an athlete, we delight in burning their jersey. We now hoist the socially guilty onto a pike for all to see as they writhe, justly deserving what they get for having offended the collective. Be warned, we will no longer engage your ideas. We will engage you and shame you out of existence. You will be canceled. Now, sadly, that is the character of our culture right now. And so we want to make sure we're clear that as Christians, contending for the faith does not mean canceling people. The Bible tells us in Jude 1 verse 22 to be merciful with those who doubt. And even when we must correct, 2 Timothy 2 25 says we should do so with a spirit of gentleness and with all patience. In fact, doesn't James 1 19 tell us as Christians, we should be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. So the truth is, shaming is not something that should be known among Christians. Shaming, as far as I know it, is still popular with the Amish and the secular elites on Twitter. Those are the two places that I know it happens, but it shouldn't be common in the church because we have the truth, and so we don't mind questions. But though we should not cancel a person, and we should be gentle even when we must contend for the faith, We must also not make the ditch on the other side. And that is the ditch of being like a kite that is caught whichever direction the cultural winds are blowing. Christians are not rudderless. We are not anchorless. And we should not be blithely accepting or indiscriminately approving of whatever the culture values in the given year. Many Christians, unfortunately, many Christians, frankly, in Raleigh have fallen into this ditch under the wrong guided assessment of niceness or hashtag kindness. But the Bible actually repeatedly tells us to be discerning. In Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, it says, let us no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but let us mature into Christ. Philippians 1, 9 is one of my favorites. Paul prays that their love will abound with knowledge and discernment so that they can approve what is excellent. 
Or don't you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And verse 7 goes on to say this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. My favorite, actually, is Romans 12, verse 9. If you want to write this one down to memorize, this in one verse tells us the balance. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So, Christian, we must not be contentious. We must not cancel people. But on the other hand, we must not be rudderless or anchorless because we must be able to both cherish and contend for the faith. So the title of today's sermon is True Christian Character, because Jude contrasts false with truth again. But if I could give you a subtitle to write down that I didn't come up with until yesterday, it would be Discerning Truth with Mercy. Discerning Truth with Mercy. Okay, you're in God's Word with me. We're in Jude. Would you pick up in verse 14, and we'll try to just... Learn from God today as he speaks to us through his word. Jude, verse 14, begins with, it was about these. Who is he referring to? Who are the these he's referring to? If you were here last Sunday, you know it's verses 8 through 13, the false teachers. And who are the false teachers? You remember verse 4, certain ungodly people who have crept in unnoticed. So Jude has spent most of this little letter telling us how to identify those who creep in, those who say they're Christian, but in fact are without the Holy Spirit. They are ungodly. Jude is essentially doing what Jesus told us to do when he said that by their fruits you will know them. So a bad tree produces bad fruit, and Jude is warning us of that. But now Jude says something that most of us as Americans are uncomfortable saying. Jude tells us that God will judge such. And so look in verse 14 as it continues. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Prophesied. Now, let me pause for just a moment, because as your pastor, I love you, and I want to protect you from false teaching. And, and here's something we have to, to stop on for a second. Jude is quoting First Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphal book. It is a book that is not in the Bible. And so that causes some people to be concerned. In fact, wicked people will sneak in and tell you, see, you can't trust the Bible. I mean, who knows what books should be in or shouldn't be in. That is totally false. The Bible's been recognized as the Bible since it was written by God's people. But let me help uh, give you more ammunition in your clarity and defense of the faith. It is not a threat to divine inspiration for divinely inspired authors to quote something uninspired. Think of Paul on Acts 17, Mars Hill, where he quotes the Greek poets. He's not saying that's the word of God. The word of God simply assures that he's quoting them correctly. That's all it needs to assure. And here the word of God is, is assuring that Jude is quoting a non-biblical book correctly. It's not endorsing it, nor is it saying it's scripture. It just assures that he's quoting it correctly and using it for his purpose that is inspired. Does that make sense? Important that you grasp that so that you're protected from those who would hurt you. All right, verse 17, or sorry, verse 14, I'm sorry. Verse 14 continues. He's quoting this book to make a true inspired point. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Now, here's what Jude is going to tell us. God will judge false teachers and fake Christians. Notice first, when will God judge? When will God judge? When he comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. You were with me through Matthew. When does that happen? Do you remember? 
It's when Jesus comes back. All right, already we have an application for us. God will not separate the sheep from the goats now. He will do it then. So we shouldn't be surprised if there are false teachers with us our whole life or phony Christians who slander God's name by living contrary to the title that they ascribe to themselves. God will do this when he comes back. Jesus, in fact, will do it when he comes back. Verse 15, who will Jesus judge to execute judgment on all? He will judge all and convict all the ungodly. On what will Jesus judge them? He will convict the ungodly, notice verse 15, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way. No one will be able to see, well, I didn't do anything wrong. He'll categorize it to them. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, notice their sin is against Jesus himself. So the words and works of the ungodly will be judged by Jesus. And Paul writes this to, or sorry, Jude writes this to remind us of something that we might only know intellectually and forget practically. Now, judgment makes many people uneasy. Christians are talking about judgment. Why do we have to judge? Why does God have to judge? But haven't you noticed these last couple of weeks that there are times that we all know we need judgment? The last couple of weeks in Ukraine have reminded us that we all really do want God to judge sin. This week, the news roundly reported about a pregnant woman and her baby who were killed in a Russian blast in the city of Mariupol. And the news, which normally disagrees on just about everything, suddenly had great consensus and clarity about the fact that this is a woman and this is a baby and they deserve to live. Suddenly they had... consensus and clarity on right and wrong and evil and punishment and things that are right and wrong transcendently for all places and all peoples, not just in a certain secular moment or time. See, the truth is we all long for a just judge who will truly hold accountable all who have orchestrated evil. In our American culture and media, we've put our history of longing for justice onto fictional characters. We have the cowboy who meets out gritty justice for women and children on the western frontier. We have the cape crusader who meets out vengeance to the seedy urban streets of Gotham. (laughs) We have a history in our arts of longing for justice. But something interesting about American fictional figures is since World War II, all of our heroes are also complicit. Before World War II, we used to write heroes like Superman who are They bring justice, but they're morally upright. But now all of our heroes are also anti-heroes. Do you know why that is? Because the world is trying to, is starting to figure out that Romans 3.23 is true, (laughs) that we've all sinned. And so none of us actually could make a perfectly just judgment without implicating ourselves. But there is one and only one perfectly just judge who has the right moral clarity to condemn all ungodliness. And he is Jesus. And he will return with his 10,000 angels. I want to show you how clear Jesus' moral compass is. Look in verse 16. I bet you the things in verse 16 that Jesus says he will judge the ungodly for, if we're honest, we don't think are probably all that bad. Look in verse 16. 
Who are these people that deserve God's just judgment when he comes with 10,000 angels? They are grumblers. They are malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. If you were making your own list of capital one cardinal sins, you may not have included any of those. But in the Bible, in 1 Timothy 3, it says, Did you know that in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves? When Revelation talks about those who deserve eternal punishment, it includes those who are disobedient to their parents. I mean, our moral compass is so far away from God's that it's good for God's word to align us again with what is actually evil. So let's slow down in verse 16 because I want you to see what God sees as evil. God sees grumbling as evil. The Greek word means someone who excessively complains. The next word, malcontent, in the ESV is fault finder in the NIV, NASB, or net. It means someone who is quick to be critical. So these first two sins, grumbling and fault finding, are actually hugely significant in God's view of sinfulness. Do you remember when the Israelites had to wander for 40 years to their death because they had been grumbling and complaining about the manna and the quail that God had given them? Now, to be clear, it's not sin to righteously lament. There is a time that something is evil and we righteously lament over it. It's also not sin to have what we might call a holy discontentment, that things are not what they ought to be. But it is sin to grumble, to complain, and whine about the circumstances that our sovereign God has rightly ordained. You see, grumbling denies God's goodness, but hasn't God been good? Murmuring slanders God's purpose, but doesn't God have a good purpose? And complaining defaces God's wisdom, but don't you believe God knows what he's doing? But these sins make God look like he isn't worthy of worship. Let me encourage all of us, because we all do struggle with these sins still. When you struggle with them, remember that since God has ordained everything from eternity past, be cautious before you let your heart complain and grumble about what he's ordained for you. Understand that that speaks about him and his character. You see, Christians characteristically are not complainers. We sin, we complain, but we repent of our sin of complaining. We will not be characterized as complainers because we know the good shepherd. And someone who doesn't will be. So the first two sins have to do with complaining. God sees these as worthy of judgment. But the next three sins have to do with selfishness. Look again in verse 16. They follow their own sinful desires. This is the heart of sin. The heart of sin is always self-seeking. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it this way. Jesus died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. So before being saved, we naturally live for ourselves. But once we come to know Christ, the verse continues, but live for him who died for us and was raised again. The next description of verse 16, I like the way the ESV puts it, loud-mouthed boasters. The net is kind of funny. It says they give bombastic speeches. I like that. The idea is an exaggerated view of self is something that is not 
Christian. And then the ESV closes with showing favoritism, but you may have a translation that says flattery, which is probably easier to understand. These sins are sins that merit God's judgment. They're sins that if they characterize us, show that we actually don't know Christ. But at this point, Jude's purpose is to move from these characteristics of false teachers and to move quickly to characteristics of those who are God's people. So if you were taking notes, number two now is true Christian character. Number two is true Christian character. And that's verse 17 through 23. Look in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved. You must remember. Let me just make sure we understand the word Remember, remember here does not mean you're 15 minutes before a history exam and you just cram some quick knowledge. Remember means something that has an imprint on your day-to-day living. So the Bible often tells us to remember what we once knew. Think of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Do not forget his benefits. So we must remember what is true in a way that impacts our daily living. Here's what we must remember. Look at the rest of verse 17. We must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. Devoid of the spirit, meaning they are not saved. So Christian, you must remember, you must live in light of the fact that there will always be people who are not saved who creep in and act like they are. Why would we be surprised about that? Has that not been predicted for us already? I love something in verse 18 that I want to encourage you with. Notice it says that the apostles said this to you. Isn't it great to know that the the Bible was written to us? So here, these passages are reminding us that God is speaking to us through the apostles and their prophecies. And to us, he's reminding us that there will always be people who are phony who sneak in. They can be identified, though, because they're scoffers and they have ungodly passions and they're divisive and they're worldly and they're ungodly. At this point, you may object again and say, well, Josh, this sounds kind of harsh. It sounds like God is saying there are some people who are ungodly, even though they claim to be Christian. I thought we're supposed to love all our enemies, right? And it's true in Matthew 5, 43 through 47, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, love our enemies. But if he told us to love our enemies, doesn't that presuppose that we will have enemies? And if he told us to love our enemies, doesn't that mean he wants us to love them like he would love them? And love always has truth. 1 Timothy 1, Paul said he turned over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme, but that is love. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes a brood of vipers. He used colorful language to let them know, you think you're a believer, but you're not. And here in Jude and 2 Peter, we have the same thing. One author put it this way, the demand that we love our enemies must never be reduced to the sentimental twaddle that merely smooths enemies out of existence. In reality, to stand for the truth, we must not be contentious, but we must contend clearly with what is true. Now Jude's purpose in all of this is to move us away from a mirage so that we can have living water. To move us from the facade so that we can have the reality. To protect us from fake teachers 
so that we can know the truth. I wonder if you realize how practically important this is. So Sean DeMars wrote his own testimony, and I'm going to read to you a portion of it. Sean came to know Christ out of a very godless lifestyle. He was involved in basically everything as a vice that you can think of. And only, he'd only been saved for six months when he met a, met a man named Roger, and Roger brought him into his home. And Roger shared biblical verses with him, but he didn't share their true meaning. And, and in short, Roger turned Sean into an adherent to what we sometimes call the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. So Roger told Sean, the reason you don't have money is because you're not naming it and claiming it. Roger told Sean, the reason you're sick is because there must be some hidden sin in your life. Roger told Sean, if you would just sow a seed, then you would reap a harvest of greater benefit and financial value. And so Sean was such a new Christian, he was so excited, he just believed everything Roger was saying because it seemed like these were verses from the Bible somewhere. So in Sean's life, he found a disconnect. He said, I had the flu and I had no money to buy groceries. Maybe I just needed to claim it. I needed to rebuke Satan and his lies. A few years later, Sean got married, and he rebuked the ATM, but it still showed that he was $40 in the hole. So he went back to Roger, what do I do? I mean, I'm naming it, I'm claiming it, I'm rebuking it, nothing's happening. And Roger told him, well, there must still be some hidden sin in your life. So you can imagine Sean now with white-knuckled obedience, Lord, how can I be good enough to get all the things that Roger said I'm supposed to get as a Christian? But see, this is what false teachers do to people. Now, Sean, God was so good to him that after six years of this, him and his wife naming it and claiming it, getting sick, having all these struggles, but not seeing any progress, he opened a MySpace account, which lets you know how old Sean is. (laughs) And on that MySpace account, he came across John Piper Prosperity Gospel Sermon Jam. Now, when he saw Prosperity Gospel, Sean immediately thought, Hey, that's what I need. I need more prosperity. Because he meant, like, positively. I'm going to learn more about the prosperity gospel. If you've never seen Piper's prosperity gospel sermon jam, the purpose of it is to show what a lie that is. Now, Sean said the first time he saw that video, he got so mad that someone was attacking what he had built his whole life on, he slammed the laptop closed. But then he said this, I just kept going back to YouTube And eventually I found myself on John's website and his other teachings. I was so mad about what he said about the prosperity gospel, I decided I wouldn't listen to him on that topic, but I would listen to him on other topics. But then God started breathing life into my soul. Sean wrote, I don't remember much about the night truth took over. Sometimes our brains protect us from the trauma of reliving something. But almost everything I thought I knew about God, the Bible, and the cross, and the gospel, I now realized was wrong. Dead wrong. He went on to continue to learn and to read, and he actually then became a missionary in Peru. And from Peru, Sean writes this. Today I write this from Peru with my family. And the white-knuckled discipline I once had devoted to the prosperity gospel so that God would do things for me, I now devote to trusting fully in the finished work of Christ and the grace I breathe in to survive. Sean concludes, here's the bottom line. I was a heretic But Christ had truly saved me, but then he saved me from my heresy too. When it comes to embracing the prosperity gospel, I doubt you would have found anyone more dedicated and ruthless as me. But brothers and sisters, call it 
what it is. Pastors, call it what it is. Don't let even a hint of this junk live in your church. Preach against it and preach a gospel that shines so bright and burns so hot that any counterfeit that tries to approach it burns up upon entry. Don't treat this disease like an asymptomatic sniffle in an otherwise healthy body. Treat it like the cancer it is. Preach, teach, counsel, shepherd, and pray a clear and true gospel and leave no room for anything less glorious or true. Now, this is the point that Jude is trying to help us get. That if we allow false teachers to lead us, it will destroy us. So we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Even in that contention, we must not lose focus, though, on our own walk in God's love. So look in verse 20 and 21 in Jude. Here the Bible says this to us. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I try not to bring out too much Greek, but I need to bring out this to you. There's only one Greek verb in those two verses, and it's the verb keep. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I know it doesn't come until verse 21, but this is important because all the other words are participles that are telling us how we keep ourselves in the love of God. So the verb is keep yourself in the love of God. How do I do that? There's three things. We build ourselves up together in the most holy faith. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We wait to see Jesus. Now think of how that would have helped Sean. Sean, keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourself up together in the most holy faith, not extra-biblical opinions. Sean, pray in the Holy Spirit, not man-made whimsical platitudes or claims. Sean, wait to see Jesus. Don't put all your hope in the here and now. See, So we keep ourselves in the love of God as we build ourselves up together, and notice we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Do you remember that phrase from the beginning of the book? The faith once for all delivered to all the saints. The Bible. We walk in the love of God by trusting and obeying the Bible. Notice together building ourselves up in it. We pray in the Holy Spirit, which is not some extra level special sauce. It just means to pray by the power of the Spirit and in accord with the Spirit's word, which is the Bible. And we keep ourselves in the love of God by waiting to see Jesus, because we know we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and that he who loved us will bring us to be with him. So let's now turn these into diagnostic questions for us today to make sure we are walking in the love of God. Brother, sister, are you being built up in the most holy faith? Brother, sister, are you praying in accord with the Spirit's word? Brother or sister, do you look forward to seeing Jesus? So much so that the things of this world grow strangely dim. Titus 2, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, verse 21, would you look again at just the beginning of verse 21? Keep yourselves in the love of God. It's the only verb there. It's the only 
driving thought there. I I once taught on just that phrase for over an hour. (laughs) And I won't do that today, but okay, I'm going to try to summarize something that's a little bit complex. The love of God is both the simplest, most wonderfully, easily accessible reality, and it is also the most profound and deep reality in all of Scripture. As we sometimes sing, if we were to make the ocean ink and drain it dry and make every pen, the parchment could not contain the whole of the love of God for us. In the Bible, the love of God is both his love for Father, Son, and Spirit, his intra-Trinitarian love. It's his providence love on, on all beings. It's his love that elects and saves. It is his unconditional love that can never change. But it is also, and this is what it is in verse 21, It is the love that we can experience waxing or waning, whether or not we will walk in it. It is his relational love that can wax or wane. Here's a scripture that will help. John 15, verse 9. Jesus said, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments. I once had some friends over who were going to a new church and they loved asking me Bible questions. I was always honored by that. And the one lady said to me over lunch, she said, you know, I've been really struggling with some things and, and I've lived in some ways that are not right. But my pastor last Sunday said, God has always loved you. He'll always love you. He can never love you any more or any less. And so now I know that even if I'm sinning, it doesn't matter. And I said, oh, it's not quite right. Do you know Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, do not grieve the spirit. Did you know the Bible says that God can be displeased even with the children he loves? Hebrews 12 says that he chastens his children because he loves them. So we must understand that though it's true from one sense, praise God, when he sees us, he sees his son and he can never love us any more or any less in that sense. There's also a relational sense in which we can find ourselves pulling in or pulling out of the relational experience of God's love for us. You know why I think we forget that? Because we forget God is a person. He is a real person and you relate with persons. Think of what Jude just said. How do I keep myself in the love of God? First, I listen to God's word, the most holy faith. How do you have a close relationship with your marriage? You listen. What else do you do? You communicate, you pray. What's the third thing you do? You delight to be with them. Aren't those the three things Jude just said? You listen, you build yourself up in the most holy faith. You speak, you pray in the Holy Spirit. And third, you eagerly anticipate being with that person. God's love can be waxed or waned out of. Again, I want to help you understand how practical that is. And so I'll share a true story that was written by a pastor about someone in his church. This is a woman in her late 30s, and she is single and struggling with that. She went back to her home and back to her region of the country, and they all made her feel like a failure for not being married and not having a family. And so she, of course, was devastated by that. And so she went and saw a therapist. And the therapist told her, your parents are wrong, your area of the country is wrong, you don't need to be married or have children, you need to excel in a career. And so she pursued career, and she got very, very good in career. But then she realized something, and I'll read now. 
she began to realize that the well-meaning therapist was only half right. Indeed, it was wrong of her to seek self-worth through male affection. That had been a trap, and it made her self-regard contingent on what men thought of her. But now she was being asked to look to her career and accomplishments as a way to feel good about herself. That meant that her self-image would be dependent on her success at achieving economic independence. So she said, Why should I leave the ranks of many women who make family their whole life to join the ranks of many men who make career the same thing? Would I not be as devastated then by career setbacks as I have been by romantic ones? No, I will rest in the righteousness of Christ and learn to rejoice in it. Then I will look at males or career and say, what makes me beautiful to God is Jesus, not these things. And so she found that she quickly became less anxious about her job as she began to sense more the magnitude of God's love through Christ. She began to experience what we might call emotional wealth, a sense of being loved so deeply that you were able to love others even when they wrong or hurt you, you can forgive. And a few years later, God in his grace gave her both of the things that she had previously lacked. See, the truth is God's love is something that you can wax or wane in based on your focus on it and your appreciation of it. So verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. How? Build yourself up in his most holy faith. God, I know you love me. You tell me in your word. Help me to trust that. Pray, God, I know you're good. I know you're listening. I know I can cast my cares on you. Why? Because I know you care for me. Third, eagerly anticipate being with the Lord. No matter what's going on in my life today, no matter how hard it is today, I know that's not the end of the story. And I know he who came will call me home to be with himself. If you wax, you grow in that grasp of God's love, it will enable you to have more security and trust in the present. And it will also make you a better blessing to other people. And that's where Jude turns now. So these final verses, 23 and 22. Here we read in God's word in verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Isn't that interesting? Just just a few verses ago, we we read about scoffers and how God's going to judge them. God judges scoffers, but we should be merciful to doubters. And we need to discern the difference. A scoffer mocks the truth. A doubter has sincere questions. A Christian should always accept questions from anybody. And we should never be afraid of them because we do have the truth. So we should have mercy towards those who doubt. I shared with you before how convicting this was for me. I know I can struggle with sinful impatience and think, why don't you grasp that? But then I need to remember, but I need to be more merciful. They probably have had less opportunity or it's newer to them or they have less background that God has graced me with. We must have mercy on those who are asking sincere, even if very challenging questions. Also, verse 23, we need to save others by snatching them out of the fire. What is that referring to? First to someone who's being swallowed up in the fire of false teaching and it's on their way to the eternity that that portends. We need to have mercy by trying to snatch them out. Some people will get so confused about truth that you have to pursue them and reach after them and try to help them before they're destroyed. But notice how verse 23 ends. Even when you're trying to snatch somebody who's 
in danger. You must be cautious of yourself. Verse 23 ends, Others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In our backyard, we set up a bonfire and we have some wood there. And I'm always very concerned when my boys are back there and we're trying to start a fire. (laughs) I see their eyes light up. (laughs) And I can imagine what they want to do when I'm not around. And so I don't want to see, I don't want them to see all that needs to happen so that they don't duplicate the same thing. I want them to realize this is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's something that if you get too close to, it could really destroy you. Now, what the Bible is saying here is you can get so close that it can destroy you. And you should hate the idea of being close in the same way you, ha- you hate something that smells like something dangerous. Have you ever noticed your sweater a day or two after the bonfire still smells like smoke? Verse 23 says you hate even the garment stained by flesh. You are so cautious about getting too close that you hate even the idea of smelling like someone who has fallen down the rabbit hole of false teaching. For years, I've had the joy of doing prison ministry, and I love doing prison ministry. And in prison ministry, I've, to be honest, been asked some of my best theological questions. (laughs) Many of them are sincere. But almost always, there's one person in the group who's insincere. And the questions they're asking Even if you give them correct biblical answers, they're never satisfied by them. And they have some other weird, hidden, mystical knowledge that they want you to scratch. And at some point, you have to be discerning enough to know there's no more conversation that can happen here that's profitable. So I want to say this to you that have family members like this. This is very important for you that have family members like this, maybe even a spouse like this. There is a time when talking ceases and prayer increases. Because you realize at this point, we can't go down the rabbit hole together. And I don't want to even smell like the fire. So I'm just praying for you. You've rejected all the biblical wisdom that I can give you. See, verse 23 is warning Christians, we must pursue, but we must not over-pursue. So here are the two big applications for us today. Number one, grow in discernment. Grow in discernment. Like Sean, come to a point where you hear the Bible and even the parts that are hard at first because they challenge what you once believed. They shatter paradigms for you, but you keep listening to the word and you let the word keep doing its work. And brothers and sisters, grow in discernment with one another. Learn the difference between a doubter and a scoffer. Learn the difference between someone you pursue and someone you let go and pray for. Grow in discernment. But second, the second big application, rejoice in God's merciful love. Keep yourself in the love of God by being built up in his love for you through his word, through prayer, and through the future promise you have. But speaking of future promise, I need to speak very candidly with everyone listening today so that God can graciously help us realize how serious a passage like this is. Verse 21 tells us, that those who are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ will be led to, notice, eternal life. But verse 23 tells us that those who are going the opposite direction are headed for fire. And we know the fire they're heading for because in verse 7, we read that it's the eternal fire. You see, there's a kind of preacher and there's a kind of Christian that will not tell you the truth about what happens when you die. So I'm going to tell you today. 
When you die, you either go to eternal life in the presence of God or you suffer in conscious torment in fire forever. That is not hyperbole. That is the Bible. Revelation 14.11 says this, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So I don't want to read about eternity with you without telling you, you will spend eternity somewhere. Where will you spend eternity? And I pray that today, if you're not sure, you will see the love of God. You will learn to wait with us with merciful confidence in the hope that we cannot lose, that Jesus Christ came, he lived, and he died for all our sin. And he rose victoriously, and he will receive us to himself, and he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Let's pray in his name. Father, I'm sobered as a pastor because false teachers remind us that souls hang in the balance. And I've known too many people like Sean in my lifetime who had found a guy like Roger who cherry-picked verses and sprinkled them to make it sound kind of biblical when in reality he sold him something fake. He sold him a life of health and wealth and ease now. And Jesus came up to people and said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So Lord, please, by the power of the Spirit, cut through the confusion in our culture. We have phones that can take us anywhere, and we can listen to anyone, and a lot of it is false. But Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Sanctify us according to the truth Your word is the truth. So help Emmanuel as beloved brothers and sisters to build ourselves up in the most holy faith and to be strongly footed on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. Help us when someone falls to pursue them and snatch them, but help us to realize there is a point where talking ceases and prayer increases. Sometimes someone sadly rejects the truth and they are overcome with the false deceit of Satan, the enemy. Lord, I pray that we would see you overcome the enemy many times because we know greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But Lord, I pray today for someone who might be on the fence, straddling the line of eternity, help them to realize that this sermon is actually urgent because their soul hangs in the balance. The Christian, through faith in Jesus alone, knows we have eternal life. But everyone else has only the certainty of fire and a fire whose smoke goes up forever and ever. Lord, you are just to judge sin. And you are gracious to have judged your son in the sinner's place. So help us to put our faith in the son and then help us to eagerly await him I pray this thing for your glory and through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.